You're listening to Market Like a Fintech, a podcast on a mission to find out what marketing strategies and tactics top fintech companies use to acquire real customers, build a brand, and grow revenue. I'm Araminta, your host for today, a marketing consultant at Mint Studios and partner at the Fintech Marketing Hub. Today, I'm interviewing Patrick Stahl, Global VP of Marketing at N26. Patrick was previously a member of Uber's EMEA leadership team and has a decade of experience working with brands like TomTom, Asics, Gucci and Abercrombie & Fitch. N26 is a global mobile bank based out of Berlin and active in 25 markets. They have over 7 million customers and were recently voted as the best bank in the world. They recently raised $30 million at a $3.6 billion valuation. In this episode, Patrick and I chat about his learnings working for big brands, how to localize your product and marketing, and why N26 focuses on partnerships as a growth strategy. Let's hear from Patrick. Patrick, uh, you've worked with some really big brands, including TomTom, Asics, A-Hold, Gucci, Abercrombie & Fitch. Just out of curiosity, I want to ask you, is there some specific like marketing channel or type of marketing that you just really enjoy doing? What is your favorite one? Well, thanks for having me, Araminta. And and I'll give you a quick answer and then I'll give you a long answer. So what is my favorite channel? I love AV. So old school television, but you know what I really love is cinema. There's nothing like spending time building an AV asset and then sitting down old school in a cinema and watching your ad go live uh, and doing that with the team. Nice. So forget about performance. This is not, uh, the answer is not based on the channel, mm-hmm, the performance, mm-hmm. but just the emotional impact of a captured audience in a cinema. There's just nothing quite like it. And I think the second channel that I love are, you know, funky, funky, stunty, tactical activations. I love the work that, that my teams did at Uber, Christmas trees, city activations, um, you know, bringing things to life in the streets of a city, there's just nothing like that as well. So a lot, lot, of, lot of enthusiasm around that always. Um, yeah, those, those are the fun ones. But yeah, just, just a bit about working with global brands in general. I think a lot of my experiences were shaped in my time at Interbrand, um, where, where I worked for over six and a half years. And I discovered, I think, a couple, a couple of key learnings there, not so much around channels, but really around how to, how to do global branding. Part of it was based on on the world's best global brands and some of the brand valuation that we did and the insights that that gave us. And, and what we really found there was a number of key key learning elements. And the, the first one was really that brands have value. And, and it sounds basic, but it is fundamental. And I think it's often overlooked by marketers, but certainly by generalist leaders, um, CFOs. But brands have real value. You can value them on the balance sheet. But they add value because they fuel growth, they strengthen loyalty, they protect and stabilize a business. And that's why you should manage the brand. It's not something, it can't be an afterthought. I think a lot of, specifically a lot of hyperscale businesses sort of come, come across brand in their second, third, fourth, fifth year and go, oh, there's this thing. How do we deal with it? It, it sort of has, has, has lived its own life. And I think proactively managing that from the start is important. I think the second big learning was always that global brands come to life locally. Uh, this this sense of yes we're a global brand but we don't exist there's no global customer there's not a like country called global right we exist on the on the ground in the cities in the streets we talk to people 
in the places where they live, where they love, where they educate. And we have to, we have to understand that. So yes, we can build global brands, but we can't do it with all those local insights and understanding how we come back, come to life relevantly. And you see that in activations. You see that in the best work that we, we do. So recently we, we did a campaign in Madrid where people were scanning digital cash on, on the floors of city streets. And that can only be done on the ground in that city. So we are a global brand, but we're coming to life locally. We understand local insights. And the best global brands are built on those human insights. So if you think about it, you can build a brand on universal insights, universal thoughts, things that exist everywhere. At Uber, the brand came to life differently in every, every city, but across the board, people wanted access to safe, affordable, and fast mobility. Uh, financial services is much the same way. There are human insights that exist across geographic boundaries, across cultures, across age chasms, across uh, cultural backgrounds. And if, as a global brand, we can focus on building our brand around those, then we can take them into local communities and activate those global insights in a way that's relevant within that local community. That, that's the formula. But that's all you got to do. And I want to dive deep into that in a bit, actually, because localizing, I think it sounds easy, but I know it's like very complicated, especially if you are yourself from a very different culture. I can imagine that sometimes you don't really, it can be difficult to understand what exactly makes someone from a completely different country tick. And actually, that's kind of leads on to my next question, which is you also, you've been working in uh, growth marketing and brand building for over a decade and multiple markets. So it's, it's, you know, it's over a decade. And in that past decade, do you, is there something like a, a marketing trend that's happening that you didn't think would happen that's happening like in the last couple of years that you're like, wow, okay, this is really interesting. Well, there's, there's a lot around us happening that we thought would never happen. So. Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> let's, of course. Let's, take a, COVID. let's take a piece by piece. Around sort of culture affinity differences um, and marketing across countries and, and localization. Take N26. So we've just hit the 7 million customer milestone. We've just been called out by Forbes as the best bank in the world, rated by customers. And I think what we've been able to do well is, is build a product that is relevant to customers across those geographical elements. The whole point, though, is that this is not, cannot hinge on me. It has to hinge on a very diverse team of people. We have to have people in our teams that reflect our audiences, that bring multiple ideas to the table that are then comfortable speaking up with those ideas. And then together we look and land what we want to execute on. But it also has to happen with people on the ground, right? So, so the type of team that we build, are, I, I guess one of the best ways to explain is kind of a hub and spoke model. So I have teams centrally that really execute for our markets where we scale talent, where we scale specialization, where we bring people in-house um, that can work across multiple markets. But in every market, we have people on the ground that are ambassadors of our customers that understand the marketplace specifically, that understand competition. They know exactly what a French customer wants, how they tick, how they, how they wake up in the morning, how they use financial services, what it means to them to be a part of the N26 community. But that's different to our customers in Germany. And so our German team is bringing those insights for the German market to the table. They're speaking to my central teams. And I think it's, that's the magic. The magic is that balance. The magic is that flow of information. At the very core, it's based on curiosity. I think if you build a team of people that think they know, you're on to the wrong thing. You have to build a team of people that are curious, that are hungry to learn, hungry to understand. On a more personal note, I grew up moving every two, two and a half, three years in my childhood for the first 18 years of my life and have sort of kept that cadence up. I speak four languages fluently. 
which gets me into trouble because I know none of them well enough. You actually kind of answered my next question, which is great. Uh, <laughs> and actually, because I, I, I remember going to an N26 event in Barcelona because uh, I was uh, living in Barcelona. And he said exactly that a product manager, one of your product managers was talking about how it's really interesting that, for example, in Spain, users wanted a joint bank account, whereas in France, they really loved the, the new metal card and how it depends on each country. Every single country is, uh, or the people in every single country, obviously, are prioritizing or wanting different things. And you kind of have to change your product or your app depending on the country. And I thought that was very interesting. And obviously, in order for your product to succeed, the kind of mentality is we need to localize it. Uh, and I thought that was very cool. And I haven't seen that with other fintech apps. So that's why it's interesting that you are prioritizing that. To some degree, to be tr to, to be fair, Armand, I, I think that insight is is valuable. And I think what we need to localize is the, or what we need to free up is the ability to, for people to come to us in different ways. Because I think even this this example of differences in Barcelona and Paris, I think that ex that difference exists between Paris and its suburbs. It exists between two different people in Paris. One person might come to us because they love the the look and feel, the the the, the physical aspects of the metal card, the benefits they get from partners, the the discounts, the the perks, and the flashy value of that. Somebody else may, might come onto the product because what they really want is a better, cleaner, simpler banking experience. Uh, and the ability to get sub-accounts without paying over the moon for them. And so the different entry points to a product, I think, are, are what's interesting about this insight. And, and those different entry points might come to bear in different ways in the way that different markets scale, because we might have pushed a message stronger or because of one feature being more distinctive in one market than it is in another. But I think it's the power of a product to have different entry points to it and almost different funnels. If you think about it as a marketer, we might attract a whole host of customers because we have spaces, our sub-account structure, but we may attract a whole other host of customers because of the metal card um, or because of our N26U uh, subscription, which has uh, travel-related perks and insurances to it. So all of those to us are opportunities to attract customers with very specific needs and messages. And this kind of leads on to what I was going to talk next, which is customer centricity. At the end of the day, this is inherently being customer centric, which is segmenting and really understanding what that customer needs and then, you know, building a product that they would use. You've mentioned before in, in interviews that you try and uh, you don't want customer centricity to just be like a marketing thing. You want that to happen across the entire company. How are you doing that in N26? How are you getting others involved in customer centricity? That's a great question. And, uh, and, and, and indeed, that my point of view is very much that customer centricity is a democratic thing. It's not something that sits with one function. We may have customer insights function because of the kind of the nomenclature in general. But I think this is one of the big advantages of younger companies, um, potentially tech companies, but, but specifically the age and maturity of a company where everybody still has access to how the product is scaling, how people are using the product in those early stages. Those companies tend to be more customer centric, not because of a structure or because of a mandate of how information is shared, but because they're small and people see how their customers interact with the business across different functions. That's something to cherish as an organization scales. And so actively finding ways to ensure that we remind people that customer centricity is not a function. It's not my remit. It is everybody's responsibility. And I think the most important thing there is stimulating that curiosity that we talked about before. So how do we distribute information 
Uh, how do we distribute marketing research? How do we distribute insights from conversations people had in the street? How do we stimulate people to talk to customers, to get closer to them, to spend time answering their phone calls, answering their emails, spending time in customer care themselves, no matter what part of the organization they exist in? Breeding that curiosity for people to understand and to have conversations internally that aren't even the sentences that that, that aren't sentences that, well, I would change this or I would prefer we do it like that, but to really listen also to the to, to the to the verbiage we use and, and ensure that people are, are thinking about the customer. So in my conversation with customer X, I understood that this would be important to that person. Or in in the research that we've recently done with customers in Spain, we we learned that XYZ. And I think at the end of the day, it's building a culture. It's not about one way of working. And it's really making sure that people don't look in one place for customer insights, but they understand that it's part of their own day-to-day, not responsibility, but kind of just the way of life, the way of working, that they they take that curiosity, they bring it, and they they execute on it by by getting close to customers. Now, part of that we can facilitate. So round tables, customer events, uh, bringing our customers closer to our engineers, closer to our marketers, open lines of communication, ensuring that everybody often and repeatedly takes on customer care as a function for a day repeatedly across the year. I think those things really help. Yeah. And I also remember your product manager talking about focus groups. You do a lot of focus groups, right? And how, like when COVID happened and lockdown, et cetera, how did you maintain that, those events or that you know, talking with the customer, obviously over the phone, but in other ways uh, in the past year or so? Badly, I want to say. We, we, we have done a, a terrible job of keeping up our, our cadence there in the first months of COVID lockdowns. And it's one of the things that upon reflection, like I can't wait to, to kick back into much higher gear. So we're currently looking at ways and plans um, once, once things end. What we want to get back to doing is spending more time with customers, um, whether that be in focus groups, customer events, summits. Um, listening sessions, but really getting closer. So what we've still been able to do, of course, is answering um, phone calls, uh, chatting with customers. Of course, we've still been able to do off, off sort of digital focus groups, but there's nothing quite like a physical interaction, I think, with a customer life. This episode is sponsored by VC Innovations. VC Innovations is a full-stack marketing services agency dedicated to innovation industries with a special focus on fintech. They work with businesses across three key areas of marketing, demand generation campaigns, and event properties, including the must-attend Fintech Talents Festival. Check out vcinnovations.co.uk to find out more. I'd love to hear a little bit more like the details of how a focus group happens in N26, if you're willing and able to share. How, how does it look like pre-COVID, I guess? Multiple ways. I mean, focus groups are are, are, are organized and sometimes it's existing customers. Sometimes it is uh, prospective customers. We will bring a group of people together. We will have open sessions in which we have subjects that we'd like to talk about. Sometimes it's very concise feedback around the design of the app, the design of the product, the placement of certain features in the product. Sometimes it's much more uh, experimental, open, open scale groups where we really talk about subjects. At what points of the day do you use the product? Where do you think it fails? Would you be open to features ABC? Um, uh, what current vendors do you use there? So that, those are focus groups and they're, they're kind of managed professionally. I think the interesting ones are also the, the customer events, right? So where, where you celebrate 
our oldest customers, kind of earliest stage customers in a market or where we celebrate the most recent customers in our market or where we host a themed event for our customers. A lot of insights come from those moments because they're less scripted, they're less questionable. And so people kind of proactively come with the ideas that they'd like to contribute to the community. What do you mean exactly by themed events? Like you mentioned, so like just an event in the city or like beer and pizza kind of event, or is it? Uh... Yeah, it could be. I mean, yeah. okay. okay. Beer and pizza, yeah, I've been to one of those. Beer and pizza there. Um, no, absolutely. Right. So, so, so events where we ask customers to join us um, could be for a product launch, could be really just to celebrate their, them being customers. And what we'll bring, we'll bring product developers to that conversation and to that event. We'll bring marketers to that event. We'll bring the local general manager to the event so that they see some of the people behind the product. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, so I went to a few of those events um, back in Barcelona and I remember also what was very interesting was how at N26, you really focus on being the bank for the everyday person. It's not being a bank for like the tech savvy 20 year old who works in tech. Cause I feel like this is kind of an issue that a lot of tech companies or maybe even fintechs fall into is that obviously like the first, the early adopters are great, but there's only so much. And I think like, from what I understand at N26 quite quickly, you realize, no, we want to be for the the bus driver, for the teacher, for everyone, not just um, the tech savvy. And, uh, and I remember hearing this mostly because uh, you were going through a branding moment. I don't think it was about a few years ago, but you were changing from blue to green because all the fintech companies were blue. So it was like, no, we're changing color. <laughs> so uh, I thought it was very interesting. What are some things that you're currently doing like in 2021 to make sure that N26 is for that everyday person? Yeah, a couple of things. I think the first one, as you just mentioned, is really just thinking, what do we stand for? Who are we looking for? Who, who are we building for? What, what is that audience? And anybody can come to this business, but who do we have in mind when we build? And there is this this sort of fallacy of logic where I think businesses get into, oh, this is who's come into our business. So that's that's our target customer, right? And so you start doubling down on that. As a tech-enabled business, early stage, you're always going to find quite a high proportion of kind of chest-thumping tech bro audiences, early adopters. And it has nothing to do with tech savviness, but it's kind of early adopters in this space. And that's great. They are very, very welcome here. And I think we service those audiences as well. But indeed, we've always set up to build a very democratic business, um, a very diverse and inclusive business. So I'm excited to see that over the last year, for example, the pace of growth among females has started to outpace males in our user base. The pace of growth among slightly older age audiences is starting to outpace slightly lower age audiences. So what I'm seeing and it's not about leaving other audiences behind, but I'm seeing that the diversification of our user base is really coming through. And I'm excited about that because it means that our message is carrying more broadly and, and I think more sustainably. What are we doing to do that? Yes, the brand. Yes, our tone, how we show up and how we speak. Yes, the product, of course, making sure that the product is approachable, that our basics are golden, that anybody can understand what they're getting into, that they can use that product. And this is not about intelligence. This is about user friendliness. And really making sure that the people we speak to enjoy the product experience. And, and there are people that enjoy a much more complex product experience. So it's not about simplicity in, it, in and of itself. And then there are very specific things. Um, shining a light on places. Uh, taking a look at what's important to our audiences and what's not working for them. Um, we published the Female Opportunity Index, for example, this year where we went out and researched the ability for women to participate in the workplace, to earn equal income, um, and what role financial services and access to financial services across over 100 countries. 
Those are things that we do because we are trying to understand more of how we can service those audiences better. And in doing so, we come across fascinating insights that we then share with the rest of the world. And we'll continue to do that. Things where we've looked at, for example, more generally the stressors uh, of financial services among general audiences, right? So not the people that wake up in the morning, they kind of go, yeah, I'm going to go and day trade. Cool. I'm glad you enjoy that. And you know, we may or may not have a product for that down the road. But right now, what I'm trying to solve for is everyday people. I'm an everyday person that wake up in the morning and don't really want to spend time with their bank. Right? It's, it's, it is not an enjoyable experience for them. And that's because inherently, I think people's relationship with money is broken. It's a stressor. We, we spend a lot of time earning an income and then we don't have enough. We don't really know how to manage it. We don't feel confident about that. And it deteriorates our self-confidence, Araminta. And so I think what we can make a difference is we can, if we turn that tide around, we can make people more self-confident and more self-confident people will go out in the world and feel better about doing what it is that they, they want to do, how they want to live their lives. Now, if I can help with that, we're going to change the world a little bit. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I talk a lot about this uh, in terms of content. I'm a content marketer and content plays a huge part, right, in uh, education, in educating the user. If we want that person to feel empowered, to feel in control of their money, they have to learn a few things, right? So that's why I've always believed that content is inherent part of fintech. If we're trying to help people, we're going to have to educate them. How do you make it feel like it's not an, an, a classroom and not education? Because mm. we do live in a world where... In order to educate, we have to attract, we have to entertain. And I think that's always going to be kind of how, how do we, how do we, how do we do that in the best way? I haven't solved it yet. We're still working. Yeah. I, so that's a really good question. And actually it was down there at the bottom. I'll, I'll ask it later, but basically like, yeah, it's, it's difficult. How do you make uh, finance not boring, but at the same time, you do want to educate people and, and empower them. Uh, one could argue very good UX that makes it very easy. I mean, there is an argument where bank accounts or bank apps are terrible at telling you actually how much you have left after all the bills you have to spend. So, and I know that at, at, at N26, you focus at, on this a lot. And then maybe one could argue also like invisible payments, payments that happen within the app. And actually, well, I was going to talk to you about this also in terms of partnerships. Uh, I know N26 is very big on partnerships uh, where you've kind of focused on that commercial aspect rather than community or other parts. So I'd love to hear a little bit more why you decided to focus on partnerships and maybe, yeah, how does that process look like when you're looking for a partner? I, I think partnerships are key. And I'll, I'll get to the other part of the question in a second. So, so on partnerships, we look at partnerships through the lens of the customer and how do, how do they add value to our customer base? And that can be because they give it give access to something exclusive that, that otherwise they wouldn't have gotten access to. It can be through discounts and perks. You know, we've had some great partnerships with brands like booking.com with Adidas, with uh, a number of meditation apps earlier in the crisis, where we look at discounts specifically on, on Google for freelancers. So there's just a, a host and array of, of partnerships that we close specifically for a user base, um, brands that are interested in the user base, exposing them and so then that place. Then there's partnerships that we look at because they they create a better or associated product experience. We really think that that's something, you know, a partner that we want to work with to build, for example, some of our insurance offering. Um, and so those are very strategic. And in the future, I don't exclude that we will find partnerships that actually provide an income to our customers as well. So I think there's partnerships are a way for us to expand the horizon of what we can do for our customers and how we can generate value in a broad sense for them. 
On the first part um, of the question, more around really looking at not just partnerships, but overall creating value for the product, uh, looking at, uh, actually, what was it? You started on, we, we went into partnerships. Before. Yeah, like the deciding factors. What, what makes you decide one partner and not the other, for example? What are you looking for, really? Yeah, it's, it's the amount of value they can generate for the customers and the fit with our brand. Um, and so when, when fit, fit with a brand, I think that that sort of democratic, inclusive mindset, I think the ability for them also to stand out from the crowd as a differentiator and leader within their category. Like those, those are things that are important to us um, that we also associate with ourselves with other brands that are looking to, to shake up their industry in the same way. And I think there are many people out there that we can, we can, we can happily partner with. So the partnership with Tinder, was that uh, also uh, a cool um, kind of with, yeah. How, can you tell me a little bit how, why you decided to partner with Tinder? Just out of curiosity, I think it's uh, cool. Shaking things up. I mean, if you look at our user, Tinder is uh, is a, a very normal way for people to meet these days and, and, and to hook up. And uh, yeah, and absolutely. So we already knew that a lot of our user base um, were looking at those services, using at them. And, and so also their Tinder are very interested. Um, we have partnerships with sex toy companies. Um, we've had partnerships with uh, with meditation customers. So when it comes to sort of personal care, but also just just expansion learning, but in those cases, entertainment and 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 also just you know treating yourself and exploring and getting out there and having a bit of fun. I think it's all part of, part of daily. Yes, and that's the point. Like as a bank, we exist in people's daily lives, and it's it's such an interesting part that, you know, to some degree, people live these hyper social open lives in the physical world but their banking their financial life has been usually very siloed very alone very restrictive and the relationship that they've had there is is usually been with a bank that's made them feel stupid at best you come to n26 we're going to give you a very different feeling your goal is to for your customer to fall in love essentially with your with fall in love with a mobile bank we want to build the bank that 100 million people love to use um why that's really hard. That's why you talk to people. Nobody will tell you. I love my bank, and so it may seem like a buzzword to some people. But talk to us and try to understand what we mean with it, and you realize how unbelievably hard that is, and how much the delta is between where we are today, or where most people's relationship with their bank and financial services provider stands, and how much of a difference we have to make for people to come back and say, "Hey, I really love." That implies trust. It implies. A relationship it implies also loyalty, but it also implies that being in love is about perpetually positively surprising somebody. It's about refreshing that relationship, and it's about it never going stale. And so there's a huge amount of elements packed into that. And what seems like a buzzy word is is to us very important, and a whole host of things that we need to get right. How do you make sure that your relationship with the customer doesn't go stale, especially as a bank? Absolutely. Right. I mean, somebody comes to me and we're promising you a better banking experience. We're promising you that we're different and, and radically different from traditional banks that we won't cheat you, that we'll be transparent and our product is better to use. And if you feel that in the first couple of days after joining us, awesome, we're doing a good job. But if you no longer feel that way after a year, then we're not doing a good job. And so I think that keeping the product fresh, keeping the experience fresh, making sure that people can see that we're hungry not just to, to get them as a customer, but to keep them as a customer, that there's always innovation, that the price is right, that the value they attribute with us. Um, it's also, we have a free subscription. You can join and you can come back with us for free. 
But if you want something more, or you find that there's more value that we can deliver to you in some of our premium subscriptions, we definitely have to fight to to prove that to you and to to make that um, you know, to make that come to life every month that you uh, you choose to bank with us with a premium subscription. So it puts a lot of responsibility on us, and I'm happy that for millions of customers today, we're getting it right. I'm looking forward to doing that at 400 million customers. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Like just the way you talk is just so different to how a bank talks. And it's, it's already just, yeah, you can just tell that it's such a different mentality, such a different perspective. 10 years from now, do you think it's going to be even more, how can we 10X this? How is it going to look in 10 years? Is it going to be super different or is it going to be just, yeah, what do you think? Nobody has a glass bowl. Maybe just one of the reasons we might sound different is because it's a bank that wasn't built by bankers. It's a bank that's been built by programmers and engineers and copywriters and art directors and uh, you know the photographers and, and and just people from all walks of life. And I think that that is still contributing a lot to you know rather than scripting it, let our people do their thing and and and, and let them build the bank that they would love to use as well. So that that's a that's a big part of it. And they are customers, and they need to understand our customers. How are we going to be different? Um, next six months are going to be very exciting. Um, I think we spent uh, the last 18 months uh, proving out a lot of things to ourselves, launching new products, but also preparing uh, for an even more exciting future and foundation. Um, I'm not going to reveal it here, but we will be expanding, of course, how we how we will be expanding, certainly, the, the services that we provide to our customers quite drastically. And at the same time, I'm keen that we continue to double down on what people consider to be basics, I think we can deliver as differentiators um, if we just get them so much better. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait to share that, that with the customers and get their feedback and, and see see how they feel um, we did. I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to see what you come up with. It sounds like this big thing. So I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. I have one last question for you. So you, you said you speak four languages, and um, I like that you mentioned that. I wonder, do you think that's made you better at marketing? I think it has, um, not because I market in those languages, but because marketing is inherently a crazy, fun, cross-functional, diverse function. Um, marketing spans all the way from statistics and, and hyper-focused marketing analytics to people that cut typography and have studied studied visual design or copywriting or, or, or playwriting. And what I have to do on a daily basis is I have to bring all those functions together. Um, so all the way from the hyper-analytical to the unbelievably play, uh, amazingly creative and everything that sits in between. And I, I see those as different languages. And so... It's not the fact that I speak four languages, but the fact that I'm able to switch between them swiftly that I think or I hope has made me more empathetic to the fact that people in my teams, although they all speak English, um, functionally, they speak very different languages. And so that's part of the fun of what I do, get to do is I get to bring those people together. I get to make sure that they understand each other and that they have the, enough curiosity to cross-pollinate effectively. Um, you know, we have creatives that love to understand how their work performed. We have performance marketers and analysts that really, really uh, jive on better creative and working with the teams and that sense of curiosity. And, and I think cross-functional language exchange uh, is something that potentially a, uh, comes a bit easier to me because I speak multiple languages. I think the key word there is empathy, uh, whether it's with your team or with whether it's with the customer, when you 
I always felt like when you speak several languages, you're almost several different people in a way. I don't know if you would agree, but when you speak more languages, you're a different person when you speak language A than language B. And by definition, that means you are several people, kind of, and that therefore you can, it's easier to empathize with other people. It's a good thought. I've always thought. I think I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. It's been really interesting and I can really feel your excitement. So I can't wait to see what N26, what happens at N26. But yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com. If you'd like to come on the podcast or just share some feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We're always looking for ways to improve the podcast. That's all for today. See you next time.